You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute. There are a few things that serve as a barometer for what our collective culture is thinking about, quite like the Halloween costume. And can we really accurately predict a presidential election based on Halloween mask sales? It's become the official logo for Halloween. The carved pumpkin, a.k.a. the jack-o'-lantern. But why do we carve faces into a vegetable again? And finally, we go into the Commute Archives for one of our favorite Halloween-inspired segments. You know those Spirit of Halloween stores that we see pop up in our towns every single year around Halloween? Where do they come from? And then where do they go? We'll unpack it for you. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Well, after a week away, it's really good to be back and recording this episode of Commute the Podcast. Yes, sir. Dave, a happy Halloween to you. Hey, same to you, man. Um, I don't really love Halloween. Uh, I don't think you do either, but I find it interesting, and there's a lot of fascinating things that go on with Halloween. Yeah, and uh, I think, at least for me, one of the things I really don't like about Halloween is I just don't really like dressing up in costumes. Like, I kind of hate thinking about the idea and then, like, executing the idea. Which is funny, because that's the part I actually like about Yeah, I'm always, like, way too far behind. Like, I'll keep putting off choosing a, a costume until, like, a day before a party, and then I'm scrambling and I have to dress in something that looks ridiculous or whatever. And uh, this got me thinking to a party that you and I went to. It's been well over 10 years ago, I think, at this point, where kind of our our, bo- our experiences with Halloween costumes sort of came to a head at the same party, right? Because you are someone who goes just straight up ridiculous with your Halloween costumes. And you, you would say that about them. You know, you really try to own, like, this is insane. Whereas I'm someone who kind of gets forced into a Halloween costume, and then I just have to wear it, and I wear it begrudgingly. So both of these things happened at this party in pretty spectacular fashion. So to tell the listeners about this, I think it would be best if I told them about your costume, and you tell them about my costume. Okay. Does that work for you? Fair. Yeah, yeah. So you at this cost, uh, costume party decided to dress up like a carrot. I don't know why you decided to do that. <laughs> it's just you had the idea and you were like, I'm doing it. And you were convinced and no one was going to talk you out of it. So you go out, you buy green face paint, you buy a green Afro wig, and you buy an orange spandex bodysuit. So you put all these items on and you walk around and you just sort of put your arms t- down and you put your legs together and you're like, I'm a carrot, you know, and all this stuff. So first of all... Um, there's, you know, we're a, we're a PG uh, show, we're a family show, so I can't explain to you uh, kind of why the carrot costume was problematic in detail. But also, too, uh, that we didn't really know anyone at this party. Uh, so you were walking around <laughs> looking like this, like, deranged person. And everyone was like, what is he supposed to be? Well, first of all, so says you that the costume was problematic. I think the costume was fine. In fact, the costume is legend at this point. Uh, when people talk about it, it's in reverence. <laughs> for the amount of effort put into the costume. Now, you, on the other hand, did not want to dress up. And so what you did was somebody just happened to have a leftover costume, and you put it on in your regular clothes. So you're wearing jeans and a sweatshirt, and you put 
a, an egg, an over-easy egg costume over top of it. The bare minimum of a costume. You couldn't even really tell that it was an egg because it was just like a floppy white <laughs> It was a big poncho. white circle with a yellow. Yeah, and then there was just a big yellow circle right in the middle. <laughs> well, Dave, Halloween costumes, they're always changing and evolving, influenced by pop culture and shifting trends. And Dave, we've been consistently wearing Halloween costumes really as far back as the late 1800s. But since costumes weren't mass produced and sold in stores like they are today, costumes back then were all made by those who wore them. During these eras, popular do-it-yourself costumes like ghosts or witches, costumes you could easily put together at home were definitely the most common. It wasn't until the turn of the century that Halloween became more popular, evolving into more of a staple in parades or at school. During this era, the Denison Paper Company really became the first company to offer mass-produced paper-based costumes and masks. Leslie Bannatine, an author and Halloween expert and historian, recently told Business Insider this, Everybody looked the same. Those were aprons with cats or little witches printed on them or hats or paper masks. They were meant to be worn once and then thrown away like crepe paper. That's the first time Halloween got a standard color scheme of yellow, black, orange, and purple with paper products. Dave, it wasn't until pop culture started becoming more solidified through media, such as the radio and the television, that we really started to see the rise of character-based Halloween costumes. Now that Americans across the country were consuming the same media, a common culture was emerging, and within that, Americans' Halloween costumes began to look the same across the nation as well. Characters like Little Orphan Annie, Bullwinkle, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Snow White all became popular costumes, and as Americans moved into the 60s, this trend continued with the costumes reflecting popular characters and people of the time, such as the Beatles or Barbie or the Addams Family. Now, Dave, in 1982, one of the highest grossing movies of all time hit theaters, one of your personal favorites, E.T. And talk about a popular costume. E.T. costumes absolutely dominated the 1980s following the popularity of the movie. But the 1980s also saw another major change in Halloween costumes, the rise of the gory horror costume. Bloody and violent costumes, they just weren't part of the general Halloween decorations and costumes before this era. So what changed? Well, a 1978 film titled Halloween did. Leslie Bannatine again for Business Insider said this, It was always spooky, and it was always otherworldly and weird, but it wasn't bloody and violent until John Carpenter's Halloween cracked it open. Now, Dave, in the 90s, costumes evolved again to embrace the name brand, consumerist culture that we live in. People began to work in name brand products into their costume lineups, such as dressing up like a Tootsie Roll or a carton of McDonald's fries. But remember, Dave, costumes are a reflection of our culture, and some of our biggest cultural figures are politicians. Political scandals and taglines make for great costumes, Manatine told Business Insider. To this day, that Nixon mask is one of the most popular masks in history. In fact, Dave, sales of presidential Halloween masks have correctly predicted the outcome of every presidential election since this data was collected. And as we move into the 2000s, though, costumes take a turn again, this time for the scandalous. In the 1980s and 90s, people would always ask me, why is Halloween so violent? Nowadays, they ask me, why is Halloween so sexy? Bannatine told Business Insider. 
This era of taking a version of really anything and giving it sex appeal has just sort of become a joke, but it's also a cornerstone of the American Halloween experience in the modern world. But all in all, Dave, Halloween costumes tell the story of our culture at a time. Halloween costumes are a time capsule in a way, a display of what we think is funny, entertaining, and interesting, but also of the events that shaped our year. I think we've talked about this on on Commute, but maybe not, that I'm scared of masks. I'm still kind of scared of masks as an adult. As As a kid, was really scared of masks. So I remember when I was a little kid, and this to this day, nobody can explain how this thing got in there, which is even more suspicious. My grandma has an upstairs, which is like a kind of weird upstairs. It's not like an actual upstairs with rooms. It's just like an upstairs that's one room. And there were some Halloween masks in there when I was a kid. And one of them was a Bill Clinton mask. Nobody had any idea how it got in there. Nobody had any knowledge of purchasing it. But the mask was in there. And I'm telling you, that thing kept me up at night, just thinking about how it got up, how it crawled up there, or who wore it up there and then left Jay, when it comes to Halloween and all of the things that come with the season, there's perhaps nothing more iconic than the jack-o'-lantern. You know, the art of the carved pumpkin. So you've got little kids. Where does pumpkin carving sit in the Sisson house? You know, we could probably be better about it. It's kind of one of those things where, like, last year we had a baby at the time, and it was like, well, we're just probably not going to have time to do this. And then the year before that, they were, like, kind of small. And, you know, definitely not opposed to it. Going to try to do it this year and see how it goes. This might make you not want to do it. So my son just turned three. So this was really the first time that we tried carving a pumpkin this year. So as soon as we brought it up to him, he could not wait. That's all he talked about all week. He wanted to go get a pumpkin so he could carve it. We go to the store. We get the pumpkin. We come back to carve it. We rip open the top like you have to do. And instant tears. Because I guess, like his dad, he hates messy things. So he didn't realize that the inside of a pumpkin is a pulpy disaster. (laughs) And so every single time, I mean, it was over and over and over, every single time, even just a little pulp touched his hand, he's losing his mind. So yeah, wasn't fun at all. But Jay, perched in a window or sitting on a porch, there is no activity more associated with Halloween outside of trick-or-treating, let's not get crazy, than carving a face into a pumpkin, a.k.a. making a jack-o'-lantern. But Jay, the backstory of where this ritual came from is a tale worthy of the spooky season that it represents. Believe it or not, the concept of putting a face on a fruit or vegetable goes back thousands of years, originating with European Celtic cultures. In fact, according to the National Geographic, it was the Celtic Festival of Samhain. And I'm sure some Celtic authority will now write the show to tell me that I mispronounced Samhain, but come on, cut me a break. So anyway, Samhain inspired many of the traditions that we now associate with Halloween. According to Samhain legend, on October 31st, spirits of the dead were thought to visit the living. To ward off these ghostly beings, people would dress up in costumes and carve faces into fruits and vegetables to aid in scaring away the uninvited guests. So while that is part of the story, the origin of jack-o'-lanterns also comes in part from an 18th century Irish folktale. This one centers around an unsavory fellow named Stingy Jack. According to the legend, Jay, Stingy Jack was also very smart. 
So smart, in fact, that he tricked the devil out of death twice. When Jack eventually died, though, he realized that his tomfoolery during his life had banned him from both heaven and hell. But the devil, you know, being the accommodating guy that he is, felt kind of bad for Jack, and so he gave him a wild turnip with a face on it that emitted light. You know, so Jack could at least see where he was going while he wandered around in purgatory. Really, though, Jay, while the origins stem from these ancient stories, pumpkin carving as we know it was propelled into the mainstream American culture in 1858 with the republished release of the famous horror tale Legend of Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman. In the story, the murderous Headless Horseman is typically portrayed as holding a flaming jack-o'-lantern. The legend is considered a Halloween story, probably because it was one of the first internationally well-known horror stories, says Sarah Massia, executive director of the Historical Society of Sleepy Hollow in Terrytown. Yes, real position. <laughs> the pumpkin became associated with that element of fear and Halloween. And Jay, as Americans embraced the fun side of Halloween in the early 1900s, the dressing up and handing out of candy, the jack-o'-lantern emerged as the unofficial logo for the season. It's basically the Christmas tree for Halloween, the thing that most closely represents it. At Halloween, you don't go up to someone's house unless they have a jack-o'-lantern, said Cindy Ott, author of Pumpkin, The Curious History of an American Icon. It's about cementing a community, projecting good values and neighborliness. It's not about horror anymore. The pumpkin and jack-o'-lanterns, they take on these meanings around Halloween. And Jay, pumpkins have only grown in popularity as time has moved on. Last year, for example, one billion tons of pumpkins were harvested, with over half of them ending up being carved into a face and filled with a light, and then placed on a porch on Halloween night. That is, uh, of course, after the pumpkin guts send my son into an emotional tailspin. Well, despite that, I think uh, you've convinced me, just based on the history alone, that I'm just neglecting something very important about the Halloween season that I need to embrace. So Dave, what do you think about Halloween? Are you a fan of it? Like, where does it rank among holidays for you? Well, Halloween's coming up, um, so this is very timely. And we have talked about Halloween on this podcast before. A previous episode explored uh, the myth of whether or not Halloween candy actually gets tampered with. And I kind of have a mixed bag on Halloween, honestly. Uh, one of my best friends died on Halloween when I was a freshman in college, so there's, there's that negative part of the holiday. But I have had some good times dressing up, and the older I get, the, the sillier the costume uh, I like to make and create. So, you know, it's a mixed bag for me. So in the nearly $9 billion industry that is the American Halloween experience, there is no bigger name than the nomadic store Spirit Halloween. Spirit Halloween sells costumes, spooky decor, and just about anything you didn't know you even needed to celebrate Halloween. And whether or not you realize it, there's probably one in your hometown right now if you are listening during the month of October. So these stores pop up in abandoned buildings around the country for only a short window from August to early November, and then they seemingly vanish overnight. 
only to appear again next year like clockwork. So these stores actually kind of fill a gap in American consumerism because they move into a space that can range anywhere from 5,000 to 50,000 square feet of space. In the company's own words, no store is too large or too small. They just basically cram all of the merchandise into whatever space they have. Now, most of the time, Spirit Halloweens move into abandoned buildings once occupied by businesses that have filed for bankruptcy. So essentially, Spirit Halloween stores only work at the expense of other stores. Without a pre-built empty space, a Spirit Halloween store cannot exist. So landlords who may have difficulty selling a space, they may choose to rent to Spirit Halloween for a short window of time to bring in money and drive traffic to the space. Abandoned stores and malls are also hot spots that get rented out. So Spirit Halloween provides all the merchandise, all the cash registers, and removes all unsold merch at the conclusion of the season. All employees are seasonal hires, and most unsold merch can just be stored and put back on the floor next year. So really from January to August, the company spends time searching high and low across the country to identify these spaces. The spaces are often open because when a major business moves out of a large space that costs a lot of upfront money to develop, it is extremely difficult to find a new tenant if that business goes under. As it stands right now, our free market can't really figure out how to properly use large abandoned spaces. And until we do, Spirit Halloween will take full advantage. So how do these stores succeed over the rise of online retailers, though? Well, Dave, it comes down to this. Pop-up stores offer an experience. You get to try on the costumes, browse through your options, cycle through different choices. And procrastination is also a factor here. Most people wait until just a few days before Halloween to pick out a costume. And the overwhelming options makes going to an in-person store much more effective. And since the average American spends upward of around $100 on Halloween every year, the market's there. But the moving target of the season means that some unconventional means have to kind of meet us where we are. And Jay, I think this has a pretty obvious connection to something else we've talked about on Commute. So if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to episode 24, Band in a Bubble, Space Jam is Back, Is That Okay?, and Selling Fireworks. So we talked to a buddy of mine who worked in a fireworks booth for the 4th of July, which is a very temporary thing, same kind of deal. They don't move into, uh, I guess, abandoned warehouses or empty store space. They just set up in empty lots. They appear... And as quickly as they appear, they vanish. It's almost like there's a, it, they're a puppet. All the employees are puppets, and the puppeteer is never seen. So like Mr. Spirit of Halloween, <laughs> the man who sits in the ivory tower, who has any idea who that is? Yeah, the man behind the curtain is just going to be a mystery. But, you know, it, but that's the way it has to be, right? Like with fireworks, with Halloween, like, because they're seasonal. You can't have a successful Halloween store that opens all year round and sustain your business right this is the way it has to be so i looked it up and it looks like uh, spirit of halloween is actually owned by spencer gifts which makes tons of sense man i wasn't allowed to go into spencer gifts as a youth because of all of the uh you know explicit uh content inside so you'll have to maybe fill in the missing information for me 
All I'll say is this, and anyone who's been in a Spencer Gifts, especially people who have worked in a mall, will know exactly what I'm talking about. Spencer Gifts had a very distinct smell. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll enter someone's house or I'll go into a store and I'll be reminded, something will remind me of the smell of Spencer Gifts and I'll just feel very grimy. <laughs> and that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Cobb. We'll see you next week. Do you remember the uh, ultimate Halloween story? About a costume? Yeah. The ultimate Halloween story was uh, when I, so I was, I was dating somebody who was uh, the kind of person who would get invited to like sorority fraternity parties in college. Okay. And so my friends and I weren't really, you know, that kind of crowd. I mean, you know this, you, we weren't really that kind of crowd. And so we go to this, but a couple guys went with me to this frat party. So her and her friends, you know, and all these these people, they're dressed up like Greek gods, you know, and like Zeus, all these, these yeah, like fraternity any, guys. Any excuse to be shirtless. I, exactly, yeah. And do you remember what me and the guys were dressed up as? Well, how could I forget? You all dressed up like a like a woodland <laughs> creature scene or something like I'm that. Just, I'm dressed up as a bush. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and the you two really guys looked like a Martian. The two, you didn't look the like guy, a bush the or the jolly green giant or something. The two guys, Bobby and Sean. So Bobby Bobby was a was a squirrel. Okay, <laughs> Sean was a fox. And so we go in this party, and they're wearing these stupid... Their costumes were much stupider than mine, especially Bobby, because Bobby had this huge inflated squirrel tail. Okay, <laughs> so we're walking around this party. Everyone's making fun of us. And Bobby, it was just poetry. It was perfect. So Bobby, he's, he's so, he can't move in this costume. It's so big. And he accidentally, with his huge squirrel, squirrel tail, knocks every single drink off of the table <laughs> at this party. I mean, it was unbelievable. Hey, someone kick those animals out of here. Let's take them out back. <laughs> That's exactly what I uh, should have told that story. <laughs>